Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome along to another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. To get new episodes every Thursday, all you need to do is subscribe. Today, we're out for a walk to celebrate an anniversary. The Ridgeway is sometimes referred to as England's oldest road. And this year also marks its 50th anniversary as a designated national trail. But how far back into history does this track go? What can you find along its route? And what is its link to the summer solstice? Well, we're about to meet one person who can show us the way. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm first meeting anthropologist, TV presenter and author, Mariana Hotter. Marianne, you're the Ridgeway's patron for its 50th anniversary year, aren't you? Yes. So can you tell us a bit more about that? So the Ridgeway is one of 15 national trails that is across the country and then the New England Coast Path. And they're protected in law as effectively special landscapes with the same protections as national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty have. And they're linear routes all of them accessible as footpaths and for people using mobility, scooters, but a lot of the stretch of the Ridgeway, this area and up to Avebury, which is to the west of us, is also, it's a bridleway or a restricted byway. So people on bikes, people on horses, people using carriages can also use this route. It's astonishing. The Ridgeway is such a beautiful route. It's pretty close to lots of areas of habitation, you know, towns and cities. A handy sort of public transport journey out of London as well but once you're up here up on the chalk downland you do feel like a long way away from places it's 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 beautiful you kind of get that breathing space and really astonishing countryside here it's the North Wessex Downs area of outstanding natural beauty so you get those big sweeping downland curves and hills and you're up on the high ground And then to the east, you're into the Chilterns AONB, Area of Outstanding Natural Beauty, which is kind of smaller, parts of it are more wooded, it's a bit more hilly, you're meandering through villages. So there's kind of something for everyone. And it does feel like a kind of wide, big place, full of nature and full of archaeology as well. It's really beautiful and we're really lucky with the weather today because it's um, bright and sunny, about 17, 18 degrees. Temperature keeps changing depending on where we are and whether the sun goes in. But behind you, we can see a lovely field of oilseed rape with its beautiful (laughs) yellow coming through. We're on a sort of crossroads right now where we've got the Ridgeway 
to our right. Uh, so the Ridgeway's running east and west here. So we've yeah. walked up the hill from the car park, which is near the valley floor, the Vale of the White Horse. And then this is the Ridgeway. So if you walk 40 kilometres to our west, you'll get to Avebury World Heritage Site. And if you walk 100 kilometres to our east, you'll end up at Ivinghoe Beacon in Buckinghamshire. This is then literally the ridgeway that we're taking right now, effectively, this yes, ancient byway across, across the country, across southern England. So it's been described as Britain's oldest road, which is partly myth-making, I think, because the National Trail does follow public rights of way, so there's some bits of it where you're kind of wiggling through. But in principle, a route that runs in the greatest extent from the Wash in East Anglia down to the south coast in Dorset, over that the high kind of the chalkland ridge would have been a long distance route and I think often we think of people in the past as being static they travelled long distances and we see that in the archaeology we see that in the way that the ridgeway is is as likely a trail as, as any that people were using oh there's a hare in that field look there oh wow darting across oh how beautiful that sort of a rich us. sort of brown colour with a bit of a creamy underside Lovely. And there's all kinds of wildlife that you can see here. We, we saw some butterflies earlier as well, didn't we? Yeah, so this is a, a really distinctive habitat that is protected by the farmers, land managers along the route of the ridgeway. And there's farmer clusters who work together basically to ensure that they're farming for nature. So reducing artificial inputs like fertilisers, making sure that there are field margins that support the birds and insect species that are chalk grassland specialists mm. so the geology here you can see it under our feet it's bright white chalk that's exposed under a very thin layer of soil so back in the day trees would have been cut down or well, this would probably have been sort of more scrubland than like massive you know mature broadleaf oaks or anything like that they wouldn't have coped up here but they would have cut down scrubland and, and then the grassland that would have sort of established would have been used for grazing animals but on in low densities and probably seasonally so in the winter people would have kept their animals a bit more sheltered down in the valleys in the lower areas and then brought them up here onto the ridgeland for sort of summer grazing and we don't really think about people walking and traveling with animals and kind of shifting subsistence in prehistory we i don't know sometimes often think of that transhumance and people moving a bit more nomadically with animals as something that happens in other cultures or other people's history but it happened all the time in 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 britain and it's only modern agriculture rural techniques that mean that now we can actually look out at a field of wheat and a field of oilseed rape before artificial fertilizers and modern farming methods this just wouldn't have sustained a crop so you would turn your animals out on up here you would have foraged for wild foods but you would have grown your crops down in the valley where you get a bit more of a, a depth of fertile soil. This uh, stretch that we're walking along to get to Wayland Smithy according to the online map was about 1.6 miles and you said uh, yeah, two, kilometers. two kilometers. Yeah. How long is the whole ridgeway though? So if you walk the full distance from Avebury in Wiltshire to Ivinghoe Beacon in Buckinghamshire, or the other way around, it's about 87 miles, so 140 kilometres. Some people walk it as a sort of a week's holiday, effectively, stopping en route at bed and breakfasts or camping. 
other people you know turn sections of it into perhaps a weekend or, or even a day walk you can walk a bit of the ridgeway and then join up with other bridleways and footpaths to get yourself back to the bus stop or the car or however you got here yes because i suppose if you're going to do this as a holiday then you need to really plan it out quite well don't you and perhaps use public transport because if you leave a car 20 miles behind then um, <laughs> yeah. you're not going to be going to go and collect it uh, yeah that's right okay. but um I think um, there's something lovely about starting a journey by public transport and you get off the bus or you get off the train and you're like, right, it's just me and my journey now. I think there's something really freeing about just walking forwards to a destination. Absolutely. You can really commune with nature. And as we see the landscape opening up to our left and right, as we're flanked by these quite mature trees probably about 15 to 20 feet tall you can see little glimpses in the landscape of um, the type of farming that has developed since these ancient times and we've got the cow parsley on the right hand side and chalk path in front of us and it's this sort of view that is leading you it's leading you somewhere isn't it really I think it is yeah and the ridgeways inspired so many artists over the years because you get these white lines sort of scored through the landscape like you say on a summer's day like today we've got skylarks singing their little hearts out just above us you know these blousy verges of cow parsley there's butterflies flitting about the hawthorns in blossom and you've got this white line and it does just lead you forwards and it's quite meditative walking here as well because the route is so clear and because it's a national trail, it's, it's well signposted. So in principle, you should be able to walk from signpost to signpost and not necessarily need to rely so heavily on a map. You can, to a greater or lesser extent, kind of tune out and just kind of get into the rhythm of step by step and, and that kind of slower rhythm that walking through a landscape, moving through a landscape, using your own body. The Ridgeway enables that because you follow the big white line in front of you. Absolutely. And you can just allow everything to slowly develop with every glance from left to right and looking up at the sky or looking at something in the distance is there's plenty to take in in this sort of vast picture of a landscape yeah i think so and the idea today you know we're walking between monuments that have a history of at least five and a half thousand years so we're walking in footsteps of ancients it brings history to life in a really visceral sensory way you know we are walking history i can see on the map marianne that we're starting to get close to a sort of green interruption to our chalk path that we've been walking for the last sort of i guess 15 20 minutes Mm -hmm. and just off to our right i can see several trees set back within a field and we've got a gate to pass through the big clue of course is there is an english heritage information panel in black with the distinctive red castle icon just beyond those astonishingly beautiful beech trees is wayland smithy it's a late stone age or neolithic tomb it's one of the oldest standing monuments in our landscape come and have a look here marianne leads us into a wooded enclosure at the bottom end there are four standing stones similar to the sarsen stones you'd see at stonehenge Stretching out from this is a long, elongated mound, about 56 metres long, or 185 feet, and it's about 13 metres, or 43 feet wide. In the middle of the two sarsen stones, though, is a small space, a tomb. 
which is just about enough for two adults to crouch into. After you. So we're going to go inside? Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes it sound like it's going to be a bigger space than... It's It's small. We're going to duck small. our heads then. We're going to duck our heads and peep in, yeah. So. But before we duck our heads, we've got to get over this entrance stone, which is easily thigh height isn't it so you sort of have to go round it don't you so this is a sort of blocking stone and then you're in a effectively a sort of stone lined passageway that leads you to the mouth of the tomb come on in and then two more blocking stones or perhaps some stools it's almost like you've got a a pre-porch and then a porch (laughs) and then the actual shoes off at the door yeah Um, and then you've got to dock your head because it's um just over a meter high and then look so what we've got here is these sarsen stones have been set upright and then capping stones sitting on top to kind of form a a solid stone ceiling above us. And then you've got this central small chamber, you know, less than a metre square, and then these two side chambers as well, east and west. almost feels a bit sort of like a church in a way with these sort of transepts, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a cross shape. Yeah. And... The thing that's really distinctive about Wayland Smithy is that it replicates in so many ways the architecture and the structure of West Kennet Long Barrow, which is up near Avebury, also an English heritage site, also free to visit. And it's part of the Avebury World Heritage Site, and it's actually the end of the Ridgeway. The thing that's really intriguing is that when this second stage of Wayland Smithy was constructed around 3400 BC... West Kennet Longbarrow was about 200 years old by that point. So the people building Wayland Smithy appear to have taken those ideas that would have been, you know, eight generations ago is, is, mm. and constructed something in the olden style, almost. No one else is building monuments and tombs like this that look like this at that time, as far as we know, that have survived. So this is kind of very much replicating something that was already ancient in the landscape a day or two's walk away next to Avebury Henge and Circles. So it would have been a a very special place, a kind of very sacred, perhaps a place of pilgrimage. So someone here in South Oxfordshire, as it is now, um, went, yeah, we're going to have one of those. This one's aligned south, though. It opens faces south. So there's no solstitial alignments or anything like that, but it's aligned with the ridgeway and it would have been visible probably without the beech trees around us, visible from the lowland, but also visible very clearly from what would have been a a kind of a trackway, a kind of a, a main route through the landscape. And it taps as well into all those ideas about the tombs being portals to perhaps the underworld we feel like we're under the ground you know we're in a mound of earth under stone solid stone so before this was excavated probably quite quickly on it would have seemed like a doorway or a cave to a different kind of realm we don't know who would have been allowed to come into this space whether it was used people came and went or whether it was sealed up or prohibited simply because you knew you weren't allowed to go in we don't know. But I definitely think this place has some kind of special aura. It's not as dark as I was expecting it to be, I must admit. So what so can we see on the left transept here, so, so to speak? These, these sarsen stones, one of the kind of ideas that comes to it is that the reason that people were so keen to build funerary monuments with them, they kind of look like weathered bones, that whitish sort of almost organic feel to them. They look newer, don't they, in a way? 
they don't have the kind of lichen and, and like little moss growth because obviously it's you're in inside the dark there. So they've been weathered naturally. But with the weathering, obviously you've got the green aspect from... It's know, just moss, yeah. Moss, moss matter light, is on yeah. there. But as you shine your light towards the corner of the left-hand side, uh-huh. you can really see that it's a more greyer colour with some sort of darker reds. And it almost looks like it's been dusted with icing sugar. With the, <laughs> yeah. That really does evoke that kind of aspect of um, something that's living that has now died and turned to bone. Yeah, I think so. What we know about who was buried here is partial. So that first monument that's actually sort of subsumed within the monument that we can see now that we're sitting inside, archaeologists in the 1960s found the remains of 14 individuals, minimum number of individuals. So 11 males, two females and a child, juvenile bones. Some of them appear to have wounds on them, arrow wounds, but we can't be sure whether that's an indication that they died because of those wounds, maybe those 14 individuals were all killed in one event, or whether it was a something else happened, it could be illness, it could have been conflict, we don't know. And the later stage of, of construction and then use of this monument as for burials, we know that human bones were found in these chambers. But by the time the archaeologists excavated, it had basically been mucked about too much. And there was an effort in the 1920s by kind of local landowners to tidy up the site effectively. And so they got a bunch of people with spades to dig out the rubbish, rubbish, inverted commas, from these chambers. And even by the standards of the day, the recording of what they discovered, what they found, what they then did with that material is really poor. So I think it basically got chucked. And maybe people kept a few bits of human bone as a sort of souvenir, token, what have you. But unfortunately, we don't have any of those remains remaining. So we don't know who was buried in this later stage of the monument or what that might tell us about the community or what the monument represented, unfortunately. So none of those 14 individuals, none of those bones remain? Is that, is that what you're saying? The remains that were excavated from that original barrow with the 14 individuals in the timber and stone funeral monument, they have been preserved. They were excavated in the 1960s. But this later monument, the one that you can actually come into, these stone-lined chambers, we don't know who was in here. We don't know what happened to those bones either, unfortunately. The laws weren't necessarily in place, although this was actually one of the earliest monuments to be protected in law because it's self-evident that it's important and and kind of needs to be Mm. looked after. Well, it's all a bit of a mystery, but um, we're gradually illuminating... It's a good mystery, though, isn't it? ...as we go through our journey. Spooky, exciting kind of mystery. I love sites like this because they are, you know, basically anything where you can crawl into a a five-and-a-half-thousand-year-old tomb and explore and wonder about what it was that people were up to. I think that's a good day out for me. Right, let's head back outside. (laughs) My best to climb up over this bit to the left. Okay. Right, so now we're standing on the mound, mound, just beyond where we were sitting. So you can see the length of it now, can't you? And you can see some of the curb stones, these smaller sarsen stones that flank the whole circuit, the circumference of the mound. Almost looks like uh, the shape of a chainsaw end, really, with the teeth of the chainsaw sort of oh, 
going all the way around. Yeah, if you like. There's one theory, actually, that the reason they constructed these kind of long trapezoidal, sometimes ovalish, but this one's definitely wider at one end and, and narrower at the other, one theory is that it replicates what a long house would have looked like. So this is literally a house for the dead, very similar in style, set up, shape, as a house for the living or kind of a communal house that people would have had in their villages. There's another theory which is that this actually represents the symbolic shape of a, a stone axe head. So that would have been a, a tool that would have had a hafted wooden handle at one end, the kind of thin end. And this would have been your kind of workaday tool for cutting down trees, doing prep work, but also we find ceremonial polished axe heads. So they were used as kind of not just functional tools, but also demonstrations of status, perhaps representations of authority, perhaps very high status gifts for gift exchanges. So yeah, maybe this is a kind of symbolic representation of the person, the power of the axe. And these are the people of the axe and they're buried in an axe-shaped mound. And because of the trapezoidal shape with the wider end where we're standing now and the narrow end tapering towards the distance, yeah, down does, to the does, that, does that signify something where we should be looking at something in the landscape which maybe is taking the uh, souls of the dead to somewhere else? or If you like. Oh, OK. <laughs> yeah, don't know. I mean, often in Neolithic settlements, we find where it's a roundhouse, the entrance is uh, looking out to the south, which is the same for William Smithy, so the entrance faces south. But then, again, that might be a pragmatic thing because you would have your doorway on the south because then you get the best light for working indoors, you get a bit of shelter from what would have been a prevailing wind up here. But also maybe there is a cosmology associated with domestic architecture that you use the space in your home in a way that represents something about a cosmological significance. So the hearth is at the centre and you move around your space sunwise and life represents that same cycle as well. So you kind of start the day on one side of the house and you move in a circular route and you know when we find people buried under the floors of, of roundhouses normally they're in the kind of the right hand side to the door so the kind of um at sunset effectively yeah but then i don't know whether you can take that tentative idea and attach it to a, a long barrow because it's such a different shape and also these monuments were used and revisited by people over generations after generations so we might be looking for a kind of continuity of thought that they might not have had because you've got three generations later people may well still be using the same monuments but in different slightly different ways we leave Wayland smithy and head back to the ridgeway turning left to follow our previous path as we rejoin the path marianne can you tell us a bit more about the history of the Ridgeway and who used it in the past? The oldest monuments that are on the route of the Ridgeway date from the Neolithic, but it's probable that people travelled, Mesolithic people travelled through the landscape and they would have used high ground when the weather was good, they would have used lower ground in, in the kind of the valley floors when the weather wasn't so great. It's a route that would have been used by traders by people moving animals, sheep, cattle, geese, people travelling perhaps on pilgrimage. One end of this route, the National Trail ends at Avebury, World Heritage Site. Vast superhenge with 
stone circles, clearly a monument of regional, if not national, perhaps even international importance and significance. It would have been one of those famous places that lots of people would have heard of and maybe it would have been a kind of journey of a lifetime. Is there evidence of people travelling these long distances? I suppose perhaps the evidence is right at the end of these journeys really isn't it for us it's they built the Wayland smithy you know they built stonehenge they built avebury etc yeah i mean paths are features that only continue to exist because they continue to be used most of the time i mean sometimes you can see kind of archaic hollowways that have grassed over but you can still see that kind of sunken lane dug into the earth i think it's sometimes hard to date a path directly because by virtue of us walking on it we're eroding the surface so you're not kind of building up layers of evidence where if you dig down a meter you get an older layer of the path you do sometimes depending on how it's been made or whether it's a sort of naturally occurring route but with something like this with the chalk with a very thin topsoil the act of walking on it erodes the layers that were there in the past So you're sort of dating it by reference to monuments that it links. So if you've got a set of monuments and evidence of settlements, then chances are the trail that joins them existed at the time as well because people wanted to get from A to B. They were very pragmatic. And also with something like the Ridgeway, this site that we're looking at today, Wayland Smithy, has very clear resonances with monuments that are at the Avebury end of the route as well so West Kennet Long Barrow which is also a a Neolithic chambered tomb so people must have shared ideas they might have shared expertise as well it might have been a connection between those communities or perhaps a rivalry but to have those social relationships means that people must have been moving between the places to share that information and to deliberate those ideas so people travelled basically and they went on foot and they could have travelled quite long distances. Absolutely, yeah. And we see the trade of artefacts as well. So when you can identify where a, an artefact or where the raw material of an artefact originated and then where you see where they ended up, that might not have been one person walking all the way from, for example, the Langdale Pikes in the Lake District with their polished stone axes in a bag. They wouldn't necessarily have walked all the way to Avebury or to Stonehenge themselves, but there would have been a a chain, a link between people travelling, between those gift exchanges or trades, so that those precious artefacts end up in the hands of someone and then end up buried ceremonially with someone in in southern England. Mm. It's sort of by inference that we know. And also, the thing about the Ridgeway, it's a high ground route that runs across the top of this chalk upland, but it's connected to settlements by the routes that run north-south, so down from the valley floor up. And often those are ancient as well. They're kind of sunken lanes, hollowways, or green lanes. And what you see is these are ancient routes as well, because people in the Neolithic were living down in the valley floor and they would come up to the high ground to collect wild resources, to graze the animals, perhaps to farm small areas of plots that could sustain crops growing. So 
it's kind of connected. The Ridgeway is the motorway, but it's got all your A roads and your slip roads coming off it. <laughs> How far is it then to our next location? So we're effectively retracing our steps now, but you get to enjoy the view the other way, so it's no hardship. We're just walking up to this high ground. Can you see ahead of us? Yep. And actually, from here, you can also spot the natural line of the horizon is broken a little bit by those kind of... Can you see the lumps and bumps there? Yes, it's sort of two upturned bowls or something. Yeah, what you're actually looking at is the ramparts of an Iron Age hill fort. Which, after some uphill walking, we're introduced to our next guest. Hi, I'm Jennifer Wexler and I'm one of the property historians. So I'm a specialist on prehistoric sites and I, I help look after over 80 sites across all of English heritage and sort of look into the research and presentation of these sites to the public. And Marianne has brought us to a very special spot where we can see lots from a 360 degree view effectively. We're on a chalk path just by the side of the road and if we turn to our right, basically the land's just disappears below our feet and you can see the valley and you can see about five wind turbines towards Swindon Way and we've got Dragon Hill I believe to the right hand side as well with the uh, steps going up to the top of the plateau there it's kind of like a semi-conical shape with this flat top isn't it and if we turn a bit further around to the right and we follow the contours of the land climbing up the hill we can see the chalk outline of the Uffington White Horse with these distinctive long limbs that slip away down the hill and up the hill as we follow the shape of the back and then the eventual neck and then we can't see the head because it disappears up to the top. It is pretty stunning and it's actually quite a magical sort of special place in the landscape of the downland. It's really distinctive geologically because it sort of is an enclosed space, so almost like a natural amphitheater. And it actually was created back, if we go back to the Ice Ages, through a series of different episodes of, of thawing and freezing. So it created these distinctive almost waves of um, geology (laughs) that's been partially also shaped by the sheep coming up and down and grazing along the grasslands on the edges. So it's in this sort of enclosed space that leads out to the Vale of the White Horse into the Thames Valley and beyond on a clear day like today. So it's really a pretty spectacular view. And as you've already pointed out, we have a series of monuments we can just kind of look at And the most spectacular one is that white horse, which is essentially galloping up on the hillside just above us, rising up along the edge of the hill and going up into the sky. And below us, Dragon Hill, which is a natural hill, but it looks a lot. If you continue down the Ridgeway path to Avebury, you come to Silbury Hill, and it looks incredibly like Silbury Hill, but it's natural, which is interesting. It's a natural sort of flattened hilltop. It might have been flattened a little bit more by humans, through use but it has that idea of a kind of viewing platform so maybe a place people are gathering to come and look at the horse and even now visitors kind of go down there to have a good look at the horse we're about almost 600 feet above the valley itself so we are actually quite high up and and we're at one of the highest points in the downland so again maybe a reason why this place has kind of been a a place of gathering monuments And, and it is also one of the few places in the downland which is kind of this gentle rolling hillside at the edge of that famous sort of chocolands of, of, I guess, ancient Wessex, you could say. We're kind of at the northern limit of that. So a place that people were drawn to over many, many years. And there's actually just above us, you can't quite see it here, 
there's a mound that was a burial mound, a long barrow, what we call long barrow, that goes back to the same period of time as Wayland Smithy. So it was probably built by some of the first farmers in this landscape. It's a little bit hidden now, but it probably is maybe the start of this landscape being seen as kind of an important ancestral place. But the star of the show is the Uffington White Horse. Now, can you tell us about the history of it and how old it is, how it got here, who created it? There are so many questions. <laughs> it's, it's so mysterious. It is mysterious. If you go through archaeological literature, it's questions that archaeologists have been asking for a long, long time. And in fact, possibly were so mystified about it that in many ways they stopped talking about it for a while because <laughs> they just couldn't work it out. So, you know, some people thought if you go back a couple hundred years, there's some really famous down in sort of the Thames Valley, there's some famous Saxon battles. They thought maybe this is connected to a famous Saxon hero or, or Saxon kind of battle as an emblem of the people who won. And if you go into more a little bit more recent times, there was thoughts that it could be an Iron Age monument. And the reason we thought it might be Iron Age is it looks a lot like the coinage. You get just at the kind of tail end of the Iron Age, right before the Romans arrive. So in the kind of 100, 200 years before the Romans arrive, you, you do actually get these horses on coins. The thing that's really interesting about these coins is that we thought almost the coins were the inspiration for the horse, but now that we've been able to do some excavations on the horse and also find a, a very special dating technique to date the horse, we realize the horse is much earlier, possibly a thousand years earlier than some of these coins. So our horse here, the chalk figurine, might have been, actually been the inspiration for these other objects of art that we get later on in the Iron Age. How many thousands of years then are we talking about the creation of the horse? What they realized when they did the excavations is that there was stratigraphy. So that's a fancy archaeological word for layers of soil. <laughs> but that's always what archaeologists are looking for. That's the gold mine. That means we have information we can gain from how they built up the layers of something. And you know, when we do an archaeological dig, that's always what we're looking for. Because that's the history of that place and that moment of time of that soil, that soil history. And so we were it was really amazing to find out that there was over a meter of chalk deposited on the site, which showed not only a continuation of use and kind of upkeep of the site, but also the fact that we could go down to this layer that was quite deep. And there was a special type of dating that's just been developed in the last sort of 30 years or so, optical luminescence. So it basically dates the last time a soil has been exposed to light. And you can date how far that in the past that's been. It's quite a technical kind of chemistry thing, but they were able to put a core to the bottom layer of the chalk in the outline of the horse and get to that deep original layer. And when they did, they were so surprised that the horse was much older than they expected. And it's probably about 3,000 years old. It probably dates to the very end of the Bronze Age or the very beginning of the Iron Age. So that is pretty spectacular. And it's, it's a really special moment in time in history as well. Do we know why it's located on this particular hill? It's not that easy to see if you're right at the bottom of the valley, I would say. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and, and it's one that, to be honest, has baffled archaeologists for a long time because it isn't actually in the most visible spot from any angle. So I actually was staying down in the valley last night, um, down in Woolston, the town just below us in the, in the Vale, and, and you do get a decent sort of view back up the manger, back up the valley. And actually, if you're raised up on the edge of the manger, you get the best view. So you do get a sense that maybe that view was important, but the best view is from the air, which is why every time we ever show this, and if you look at, at our website, the information about the horse, it's an aerial photo. So 
why is the sky important? You know, why are people sort of trying to connect to that? And, and there's a really kind of interesting history of this and possibly a connection to the solstice, which is one reason we wanted to take you to the horse today because we wanted to talk about the summer solstice, which is coming up. And in Britain, we have this long time history throughout prehistory of people connecting to these important moments in the seasonal calendar. And we have monuments such as Stonehenge that have these important solstice alignments. And obviously, we've talked about this in other podcasts and lots of other places, so I won't go into too much detail. But it's really important that people understood the seasonal calendar, but also because of livelihoods. These are early farmers, people who had to move animals and, and live off the land. Their livelihoods were really connected to understanding the sun cycle and the power of the sun. And, and the sun maybe even became a bit of a sort of religious entity or connected possibly to some kind of god. We don't completely know but it became something of really supreme importance. So we see this over and over again, the sun being connected to in lots of different ways in prehistory. And in that later Neolithic, going back about 5,000 years ago, 4,500 years ago, we get those big monumental megalithic sites like Stonehenge that have that solstice connection. A little bit later on, as you get into the Bronze Age, those monuments maybe slowly go out of fashion, but you get objects, beautiful gold objects, like gold sun discs and and even if you go to Europe funny hats that have sun imagery on them and so again almost like people taking on personal objects that they can wear that are associated with the sun but something really interesting happens later in the Bronze Age so around 3,000 years ago maybe a little bit before 3,500 years ago in northern Europe we actually start to get horses domesticated horses and with domesticated horses seems to come a kind of mythological package, mythological ideas, or a set of myths that seem to move with the horses. And I should point out that domesticated horses come from the Eurasian steppes. So they're kind of coming across Europe, and it's a period of time when we also get people coming across Europe from possibly the same places. So maybe they're coming with these ideas around horses. And it's almost that connection to the power of the sun gets reinscribed through a new symbol, which is the horse. And it's really spectacular here because we see a sort of physical manifestation of this mythology. And it's especially really apparent here if you come around the winter solstice where the sun is rising and the sun seems to rise just over the edge of the scarp. So right at the edge of the hill where the horse is situated, the sun kind of comes up behind it and it seems to kind of almost rise up, almost like the horse is running across the top of the hill into the sky with the sun dragging the sun behind it. It's really apparent if you stand on Dragon Hill around that period of time. But also, if you stand even lower in the valleys, down um, in the valley at the bottom of the manger is some springs that were really important in prehistory. And from there, it looks like the horse is actually rising out of Dragon Hills, almost like a primordial mound with the sun coming out its back. So why would the horse be dragging the sun behind it? That's really weird, right? You know, why would they depict this within the landscape? And the, the reason that we think they were doing this is because of a mythology that comes from Northern Europe. And where we see it really is in Scandinavia. And we have a series of objects in Scandinavia going back to the Middle Bronze Age, so going back about 3,500 years ago, that actually depict this very scene. So we have this amazing small chariot that was found in a bog in Denmark called the Trondholm Horse Chariot. And it literally shows a horse, not dissimilar to this horse, dragging behind it a golden sun disk. And it shows the same movement of the horse moving across the sky, it would be from east to west. And if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, if you actually watch the sun over the course of the day, it looks like it moves from east to west. So this is almost like a live 
action version of that in a physical landscape. We also have it on little razors and other things like rock art in Scandinavia. So some of those ideas might have filtered through from the north and obviously the sun in the northern hemisphere is pretty important. If you're here in the winter, especially if you go further north into Scandinavia, you're barely getting any light, the sun is dying, you're thinking, oh gosh, we really need to placate those sun gods and make them happy so we continue to prosper in, in health. And, and here we have this kind of choreography that is pretty magical of this horse moving with the sun across the top of the manger and into the sky and doing the full arc. And if you continued watching the sun, it would set. Where would it set? In where, the west. Exactly. And where, just to the west is Wayland Smithy, which is, you know, this, ah. this ancient site that actually, if you think about, by the time they built the horse, that site would have been a couple thousand years old. So do you think they're working in tandem? Well, I think they're referring to these ancient monuments in the landscape. And again, this is nothing new. Any of our really monumental landscapes in Britain have these layers of history and layers of reference. So if you go to Avebury or Stonehenge, they are referring back to monuments that are much older to them, almost in conjunction with them. So there's layers of meaning in a place that maybe have a, a viewed as an ancestry, but also some place that maybe you don't have a direct memory of, but you just know it's magical. And so that maybe is the portal into the underworld where the horse takes the sun at the end of the day where the sun sets and you go underground and the horse kind of continues the journey and it returns on the next day so it's sort of this cosmic choreography in this landscape that is really special and so unique to this place this is the earliest chalk sort of hill figurine we have in europe possibly one of the earliest in the world so it's, it's truly a sort of, sort of marvel of the british landscape it is that's the horse. You could say it was made in Scandinavia, or at least influenced by <laughs> influenced. Scandinavia. Scandinavian design, it was influential for thousands of years. Now the next question is, <laughs> Dragon Hill, why is it called Dragon Hill? That's another sort of inscribed, more modern sort of inscription on the landscape of a different mythology. And we call it Dragon Hill because it is supposedly the place where St. George killed the dragon and slaughtered it. And you can notice that the top, it's not very grassy on the top. You can see the chalk. Yes. And it never seems to grow over that chalk. So the, the idea is that the dragon sort of scorched the earth. And some people even think the white horse is actually, because of the shape of it, which is a bit funny, is maybe the dragon. You know, so there is a more historical Christian sort of relevance that's been put onto this place. But what's really interesting, even though it's a natural hill, as I mentioned before, it's been kind of flattened off. So it's a place you get a sense where as a place that people are going to gather and maybe, you know, celebrate there's a huge amount of potash left on top of the hill, which is really why it, the grass doesn't grow there. And that might be left from all these hundreds and thousands of years of celebrations, including more historical celebrations. So it was clearly a kind of gathering point in the landscape where you can almost like a viewing platform, you know, to look at the festivities, if that makes sense. And it's also maybe the place where people were coming up from the valley below, because we should really point out, people weren't living up on this hill. You know, this hill, when you come up to it, it's like a world beyond. But if you look down, even now, if you look at the line of villages, we do know they were living, and there was a settlement not too far away, just a couple of kilometers down in the valley, so probably close to where the current village of Wilson is. And that settlement would have had a view back up to the horse, and it would have been contemporary with the horse. So we know people were living down there, and probably, as Marianne's mentioned, you know, coming up here for moments of things 
such as bringing your animals up for summer pasture, but also for these moments of gathering and ceremony at really important parts in the seasonal calendar. After Dragon Hill and Uffington White Horse, we make one last climb to our final destination. We've just climbed a path, Jennifer, and uh, we've reached a sign where it says Uffington Castle, basically further up the hill with an arrow and white horse to the left. So we're we going up to Uffington Castle. Yeah, so we're gonna go now to what you could arguably say is the most prominent sort of monument on this sort of hill. It's the one that you really can see from a distance and it's this massive Iron Age hill fort, quote unquote, that has these massive ramparts that's just right at the top of the hill. So we're just gonna keep on heading up and see what we can see. It's quite a, it's a reasonably uh, tall hill. One of the tallest points in the Downs in Oxfordshire. So we're gonna go up and have a look at the view, which is great. Yeah, that's the big payoff, isn't it really? For people who like geography, you get your geography with your history here. It's kind of like a buy one, get one free. And you get legs of steel too. <laughs> exactly. So it's, so it's a bit like going to the gym as well. Exactly. And as you get to the top as well, the sky kind of becomes the greater feature. It's the blue and the white of the wispy clouds as they float along the horizon. Definitely. You do feel like you've really gone up into this wide, expansive skyscape. feels like you are in a different world, actually. It feels a bit more... You know, to use the sort of Christian idea, feels a bit more heavenly, doesn't it? It does. It really does. And we're lucky to have a beautiful day for it. You can imagine that it would have been a magical experience to come up into the sky world. Okay, so let's talk about Uffington Castle and the earthworks. So that's effectively what we're kind of looking at now. We've got a ditch in front of us and then quite a tall earthwork behind it which I guess is 20 feet tall maybe and it's it's at a 45 degree angle roughly. I think the banks are about six seven meters at the tallest point but what's really interesting about this castle is and castle is such a like a it's kind of a medieval term <laughs> so let's not quite use that what's interesting about this hill fort and it's often the case with all the hill forts along the ridgeway is that you know they are again slightly mystery sites they don't have that sort of evidence of habitation on a wide scale that you get at hill forts and some of the other parts. But what's interesting about this hill fort is it was built just either around the same time as the horse or in the couple centuries after the horse, depending on how you look at the dating. So it has a connection. And when they built it, they had an actual timber sort of monumental walkway along the whole top of the ramparts which now is obviously not visible. <laughs> and the chalk would have been sort of kept clean, so now it's covered in grassy vegetation. But back then it would have really glowed white, so really would have been like a pretty stunning monument in the landscape. And probably it was a place of gathering, which is of key importance if you, th if you think about what we just talked about, that dramatic cosmological idea connected to the horse just below us that maybe this is a place where people are coming together, maybe in the summer or a seasonal time of year when they're bringing their flocks up here for grazing and they're coming up to here and having essentially something like a fair or sort of meeting point. It also would be a really important place for people to go for safety. So, you know, it still is a, a kind of defended site. So maybe, you know, if you're living in your, your nice little house, undefended house down the valley and something sinister is coming your way, you go up into the hills, it's a natural thing to do. What shape does it have from the sky? Is it a circular kind of rampart shape? It is actually fairly kind of circular or oval. 
debating on the purpose of hill forts, we know that these sort of circular shaped monuments in prehistory have a lot of significance. They are connected to this kind of history of gathering and creating sort of a place to go in the landscape. And that goes back well into the first farmers in the early Neolithic, almost 6,000 years ago. And we have these hilltop sites over and over and over again as places to go that are important places. And so whether it's for, you know, safety and refuge or for a fun gathering of your seeing your distant cousins coming with their cows and having a bit of an exchange and, and a bit of fun, it's probably these things are not, there's multi-purposes and different generations we're using it in different ways. Having moved about, uh, I guess, 40 feet from where we were standing before, we sort of climbed up into this now plateau area, which is the, the hill fort, effectively. It does have a different feeling because with the surrounds of the earthworks, it feels a bit more protected. And actually, we can really hear the skylarks more, <laughs> yeah. which I think is really striking. And also, we don't have the wind as much. And I think that's really interesting. But you're going to say something about the Roman history that there is here as well. Well, just really briefly that, you know, this seemed to be a place that people continued to come to. And even the Romans, as sort of essentially the original tourists, came up here and checked out what was going on and seemed to have essentially festivals up here in this space where we're standing now and, and possibly had a little shrine and maybe connected to some of the burials out in the landscape. So maybe a place to come and honor their dead in their own way. But I think the key point here is that the white horse has been preserved for over 3,000 years. We know there's other chalk figurines that have disappeared. So why did people preserve this even though they didn't create it themselves? And there's something really special and magical about that, that it's something people just preserved because they liked it and maybe made it part of their, their own mythology. Um, you know, going back to Wayland Smithy, we have our Anglo-Saxon god, you know, this early medieval god. And, you know, there's an idea that the horse kind of would rise up once a year go eat down in the manger and go get reshod by Wayland. So it connects into to that history of that place. So we have these layers of mythology that have made this a special place. And you can see now it's actually, the site's really busy. People are walking around enjoying themselves. So people are still connecting to the magic of this place. So as we toast then, Jennifer, the uh, end of our podcast and <laughs> just close with some questions with Mary Ann who rejoins us. It's 50 years since the Ridgeway's designation as this national trail. What else is happening to mark the anniversary? So to celebrate the anniversary year, you can go online and discover we've got a Ridgeway 50. So a new thing to think about, an anecdote, a story, a tale from history, something of the flora and fauna to spot at that time of year. So you get something new on social media every Sunday evening. And we've also got a monthly Ridgeway Spotter programme. So looking at the way this landscape changes seasonally and kind of ideas for people to get out and explore the landscape on their own terms, find their own routes, perhaps go up and simply visit a viewpoint for half an hour or maybe plan a, a longer walk. It's entirely up to you or a bike ride. And then also we've got kind of special events. There's lots of organised events that use the Ridgeway because it's such a kind of an iconic route and accessible so kind of if you're into ultra running you can do a race to the stones or a charity challenge hike but if you want to just explore the landscape a little bit more then there are guided history walks guided bird watching walks guided art journaling sessions there's a bio blitz that's being run by academics ecologists and farmers locally to help families get together and explore more about the landscape and how how we can look after these habitats and this environment and then of course 
there's the annual scouring of the horse, which involves a, a huge volunteer effort organised by the National Trust Rangers, where basically members of the public are invited to come up and for 10 minutes or for three hours, you can help clean the horse and then stamp new chalk into the outline. It keeps it white, it keeps it beautiful, it preserves the archaeology and... I mean, the bottom line is it's a, it's a pretty special experience, completely free, and you become part of that link in the chain of keeping this magical monument alive. Mm. You and 3,000 years of other people who've been doing it before you. Yeah, it's great that it's still going on into the future, and that brings us into another question about the history and the future of the Ridgeway. So how will the Ridgeway continue to be protected going forward? The Ridgeway is protected under law. It's part of the family of designated national landscapes but as all government entities it's being strangled basically by lack of resource the highways officers along the whole length of the ridgeway do their best as do individual land managers and organizations like english heritage and national trust who who look after pockets of of the landscape for us But basically, more money is better. It maintains the infrastructure on the trail, so things like fingerpost signs, accessible gates, and it also maintains the surface because this chalk is a relatively fragile and delicate surface. It can get very badly affected by a heavy winter, lots of rain. You get very eroded kind of gullies and they become very difficult to ride a bike, ride a horse, walk on, run on. If you're using a mobility scooter, then parts of it can become impassable. So it's always a challenge to find the money to maintain the Ridgeway to a standard that means it's accessible for everybody. And that's really what it should be in the same way that English Heritage look after our historic monuments for the benefit of everyone trails like the Ridgeway are there for us all to enjoy and should be accessible for everyone. Precisely because they take us from point to point effectively and we need the Ridgeway in order to connect all these different archaeological sites. And the power of the outdoors is indisputed it's really good for our physical health it's really good for our mental health it gives us a sense of identity and community and connection and that's the same certainly for me in the way that I get excited about archaeology and history and our heritage it's about kind of my place in that long story of of England's history so I think for me personally it's absolutely essential that sites are accessible to absolutely everybody and that you feel welcome and included and embraced really because I think centrally we have to remember that the outdoors is for all and so is our heritage. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be discovering what life was really like for the average medieval peasant. It's not an English word, or at least it's not a word with English origin. It just means country people, small cultivators, absolute maximum 50 acres of land. They've got enough to live on, but not enough to be rich. Thanks for listening. See you next time.